And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studio right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 17th. It is the 76th day of the year. 289 days remain to the year's over with. And we got a bunch of holidays today. It is National Red Nose Day. So if your nose is red, get up there and show it. Supposedly, the holiday is about making a difference by having fun. Then we got World Sleep Day. I know a lot of folks that sell at that. And believe it or not, it is St. Patrick's Day. The... Um, you know, wearing green, drinking green beer, searching for leprechauns. It's all part of the the uh, fun associated with St. Patrick's Day, whether you're Irish or not. You know, Erangelbra, meaning uh, Ireland forever, is often heard as part of the celebration of St. Patrick's Day. It's a time to show your appreciation for Irish culture. And... Uh, you know, a lot of folks really get off on all things Irish. Now, St. Patrick's Day, or also known as St. Patty's Day, or sometimes just Patty's Day, is an annual feast day that celebrates St. Patrick, the most commonly recognized of the patron saints of Ireland. But most folks don't seem to understand that uh, St. Patrick wasn't Irish. Though his life's work took place in Ireland, he, he didn't go there willingly. And instead, at the age of 16, he was kidnapped from his family's British estate and taken to Ireland as a prisoner. After six years, he escaped, but uh, showed excessive forgiveness when he went back as a missionary. I'd have gone back with the largest bat I could carry. Now, St. Patrick's Day celebrated uh, worldwide by those of Irish descent and Increasingly by people of other ethnicities as well, notably in Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, and here in North America. The celebration takes place on this day in honor of the death of St. Patrick, which took place more than 1,500 years ago on March 17th in the year 492. Celebrations for St. Patrick's Day are generally themed around all things Irish and by association the color green. Both Christians and non-Christians celebrate the secular version of the holiday by wearing green, eating Irish food and or green foods, imbibing Irish drink and attending parades, which have a particularly long history in the U.S. and Canada. You know, some interesting facts about St. Patrick's Day. The first St. Patrick's Day parade in the U.S. was held in New York City in 1766, even before we were an independent nation. Now, Patrick probably didn't drive the snakes out of Ireland. So we can't blame him for all those sitting in Congress. Though a legend gives him credit for this, scientists believe the island of Ireland was never actually had any snakes. Unfortunately, Congress always had snakes. St. Patrick changed his name at birth. He was given the name of Maywin, Sukkot, and took on the name Patrick. Teresa, yes, but when he became a priest. So, uh, alternatively, 
if you're one of those that are really into uh, historical things, you can celebrate uh, St. Malin Sukkot's Day. The uh, we got National Corned Beef and Cabbage Day, and of course March Madness. The um, interesting thing about uh, March Madness, I used to know people who lived and breathed basketball. In fact, at one point I played it. Uh, also played football, baseball. Quit football and I discovered I wasn't the biggest person on the field. Then uh, in 45 B.C., in his last victory, Julius Caesar defeated the Pompeian forces of Titus Labinius and Pompey the Younger in the Battle of Munda. In 180, Commodus becomes sole emperor of the Roman Empire at the age of 18 after the death of his father, Marcus Aurelius. 455, Petronius Maximus becomes uh, emperor of the Western Roman Empire with the support of the Roman Senate. He forces Lucinia Eudoxia, the wood of his predecessor, Valentinian III, to marry him. That's one way to get a job. 1337, Edward the Black Prince is made Duke of uh, Cornwall, the first duchy in uh, England. And in 1400, the Turco-Mongol Emperor Timur sacks Damascus, which until that point in time was considered uh, impregnable. 1776, American Revolution, British Army evacuates Boston, ending the siege of Boston after George Washington and Henry Knox place artillery in positions overlooking the city. They'd been besieged by uh, militia for quite some time, but uh, basically ignored them. 1805, the Italian Republic, with Napoleon as president, becomes the Kingdom of Italy, with Napoleon as King of Italy. 1824, the Anglo-Dutch Treaty is signed in London, dividing the Malay archipelago. As a result, the Malay Peninsula is dominated by the British, while Sumatra, Java, and the surrounding areas are dominated by the Dutch. 1842, the Female Relief Society of uh, Nauvoo is formally organized with Emma Smith as president. 1860, the first uh, Taranaki War begins in Taranaki, New Zealand. It was a major phase of the New Zealand Wars. 1861, what you might call the modern kingdom of Italy is proclaimed. 1862, the first railway line in Finland between the cities of Helsinki and Aminlina, called uh, Parada, is officially opened. 1891, the SS Utopia collides with the HMS Anson in the Bay of Gibraltar and sinks. Of the 880 passengers on board, 562 met a waterly end. 1921, the Second Polish Republic adopts the March Constitution. 1942, the Holocaust. The first Jews from Lvov Ghetto are gassed in the Belzic death camp in what is today eastern Poland. 1945, Udendorf Bridge in Normagen, Germany collapses 10 days after it was captured by the Allies. Now, the basis of uh, the uh, the movie A Bridge Too Far was the capture of the Remagen Bridge. 1948, Belgium, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom signed the Treaty of Brussels, a precursor to the NATO. 1950, researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, announced the creation of Element 98, 
which they named Californium. 1957, a plane crash in Cebu, Philippines, killed Philippine President Ramon Magsaysay and 24 others. There was always the rumor that that was sabotage, but I don't know. 1958, the U.S. launches the first solar-powered satellite, which is also the first satellite to achieve a long-term orbit. 1960, President Eisenhower signs the National Security Council Directive on the anti-Cuban covert action program that eventually led to the Bay of Pigs invasion, which didn't go quite as planned. 1960, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 710 crashes in Tobin Township in Perry County, Indiana. Kill 63. 1963, Mount Agung erupts in Bali, killing more than 1,100 people. Um, 1966, off the coast of Spain in the Mediterranean, D DSV Alvin submarine finds a missing American hydrogen bomb. You know, there's so many. If they miss a few, well, what the hell. 1968, the result of nerve gas testing by the U.S. Army Chemical Corps in Skull Valley, Utah, over 6,000 sheep are found dead. 1969, Golda Meir becomes the first female Prime Minister of Israel. 1973, the Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph, Burst of Joys, taken depicting a former prisoner of war being reunited with his family, which came to symbolize the end of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War. You know... I had an argument with the VA about whether or not I was a Vietnam-era veteran until, hidden deep in the records of the Waco Regional Office, was a copy of my enlistment documents, September 3rd, 1971. And uh, makes me wonder what else is hidden deep in their records. 1979, the Penn-Manchel Tunnel collapses during engineering work, killing two workers. 1985, the serial killer Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, commits the first two murders in his Los Angeles crime spree. 1988, a Colombian Boeing 727 jetliner, Avianca Flight 410, crashes into a mountainside near the Venezuelan border, killing 143. 1988, Eritrean War of Independence, the Nadu Command, an Ethiopian Army Corps in Eritrea, is attacked on three sides by military units of the Eritrean People's Revolution Front in the opening action of the Battle of Alphabet. 1992, Israeli embassy attack in Buenos Aires, a car bomb killed 29 and injured 242. Also in 1992, on this date, a referendum to end apartheid in South Africa has passed 68.7% to 31.2%. 2,000, 530 members of the Ugandan cult movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God dying of fire. Considered to be a mass murder or a suicide orchestrated by the leaders of the cult. Elsewhere, another 248 members are also found dead. I've never understood suicide. What have, what have you accomplished? I'll make everybody regret the way they treated me. I'll kill myself. Yeah, that's going to really do them in. 2003, Leader of the House of Commons and the Lord President of the Council, Robin Cook, resigns from the British Cabinet in disagreement with the government plans for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. 
2004 on Reston Kosovo. More than 22 are killed and 200 are wounded. 35 Serbian Orthodox shrines in Kosovo and two mosques in Serbia are destroyed. And in 2016, the Rojava conflict. The conference in Ramallah, the Movement for a Democratic Society, declares the establishment of the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Well, you can declare all you want, but if you don't have the military might to back it up, it doesn't really make any difference. Well, now we've been talking over the last uh, few shows about what I considered unfinished business, and that's uh, unsolved murders. The um, interesting thing about an unsolved murder is that, um, hmm, I just noticed something. I just got a, I had to um, install a, a new computer. Because I discovered that um, Apple, and I use a lot of Apple products, has basically built in obsolescence. At a certain point, they don't support your computers anymore. You have to buy a new one. Which, of course, is good for them. Not so good for the average individual. He's, I am told, 66% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. Well, there was an unsolved murder at a uh, famous Finnish beauty spot. Four sleeping teenagers were uh, attacked. Nobody ever found a motive. Now, Finland's Lake Bodom is situated in the southern city of Espoo. Between June and August, the sun really doesn't set. The temperatures soar, and Finns of all ages flock to the lake to celebrate the arrival of summer and the passing of the winter. And on June 4, 1960, four teenagers pitched their tent on the lake shore. Leila... Irmela, Borshgalun, Anja, Tukliki, Maki, who were both 15, and her two boyfriends, Sipo and Taro Boisman and Nils Wilhelm Gustafsson, both 18, planned an evening of fishing and camping. I'm sure that was a romantic evening. After riding their motorcycles to Lake Bodum from their hometown of Vanta, the teenagers chose a spot, which is shady by birch trees along the shore of the Finnish Bay. Spent the evening chatting and swimming and fishing and oblivious to all the horrors that would soon visit their campsite. Between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. on the morning of June 5th, the sleeping teenagers were brutally attacked. They were bludgeoned with a heavy object, probably a large rock, and slashed and stabbed with a knife. Um, making the investigation a little difficult, the murder weapons were never found. By 11 a.m., a local carpenter named... Risto Seren stumbled across the scene while out for a swim with his son. Miraculously, Nils Gustafsson was unconscious but still alive. Sole survivor of the brutal attack. But he was injured 
seriously injured. Had a concussion, fractures to the jaw, bruises on his face. Um, when he came to, he stated he didn't have any recollection of the attack. And that was supposedly because of shock. He says his last memories when we went to bed and wished each other good night. After that, I don't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday when I woke up. Uh, his girlfriend, Maila, sustained the most vicious injuries. She was discovered lying on top of the tent of the tent with his underwear, uh, with her underwear removed. She suffered significant uh, more stab wounds than all the others. In fact, a cluster of the wounds had been uh, inflicted post-mortem, and the majority on her neck, which makes me wonder if perhaps she was the cause of the attack. The investigation concluded the killer hadn't entered the tent, but had attacked the teenagers from outside it as they slept. The tent had at least 25 slashes, and several items belonging to the teenagers had been stolen, including a wallet and items of clothing. Neil's shoes were gone. And strangely, the keys to the victim's motorcycles had been taken, but not the motorcycles themselves. About uh, 800 meters from the crime scene, several of these items were found, including Neil's shoes which were partially hidden. In front of the mangled tent with a set of bloody footprints that matched O'Neill's discarded shoes, implying the killer had fled the scene while wearing them. Did he come without his own shoes? That's a question that's never been answered. Two of the boys had been birdwatching near the crime scene came forward to tell police that they'd seen a blonde-haired man walking away from the collapsed tent at about 6 in the morning. These... Two young witnesses uh, would later undergo hypnosis in the hope they could provide more information about the individual they saw. And while they couldn't give any further details, their story remained the same. And a composite sketch of this unidentified man was drawn by a police sketch artist. After making a full recovery from his injuries, Nils would also undergo hypnosis. During the session, he recollected a vision of a figure coming toward him, dressed in black and with glaring red eyes. Over time, several individuals became suspects in this gruesome triple murder. One of the most plausible was uh, Carl uh, Vandemar. Gisrom, a kiosk vendor at Lake Bodong. He was known locally for his aggressive behavior toward campers. On occasion, he would even slash the ropes of tents, causing them to collapse on the sleeping occupants. Ulf Johansson, author of the 2016 book on the case called The Legend of Bodum, recalls how he was once a victim of Carl's angry outburst. When Ulf was a teenager, Carl had actually thrown rocks at him as he cycled past. Well, local people found it suspicious that following the murders, Carl filled in a well on his property. And because the murder weapon had never been discovered, some suspected they'd, the murder weapon has been thrown into the well. In 1969, Carl drowned in the lake. Before his death, he allegedly confessed to a neighbor he'd killed the campers. He'd never, fully, he'd never been fully investigated as a suspect in the murders. His, his wife had given him a seemingly ironclad alibi, claiming he was in bed asleep. However, shortly before she passed away, she made a deathbed confession that the alibi was false and said that he had uh, threatened to kill her and her children if she refused to provide a cover story for him. So certainly... He could have definitely uh, carried out the killings. Another prime suspect throughout the investigation was an alleged KGB spy named Hans Osman, who once claimed, bizarrely, he served as a guard at Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland during World War II. 
day after the murders, Hans checked himself into the Helsinki Surgical Hospital, and his uh, appearance was described as extremely disheveled. Nurses recollected his fingernails were black with dirt, and his clothing was stained with a red substance. Doctors who saw him that afternoon were adamant that red stains on his clothes were blood. Hans was said to have acted in a suspicious manner at the hospital, giving a false name, telling contradictory stories about how he had been um, injured and actually pretending to be unconscious. However, despite the doctors and nurses' reports, his bloodstained clothing was never examined by police, which shows just how thorough the ex their investigation actually was. Another interesting point that the police failed to take into account, after the description of the blonde-haired suspect spotted by the young bird watchers that were released to the media, Hans cut off his own blonde locks. In addition, his clothing was said to match that worn by the elusive blonde-haired man, and a, a man resembling Hans was photographed at the funeral of the victims. Now, you need to keep in mind, it's not unusual for the killers to make an appearance at their victims' funerals, maybe out of curiosity or maybe with the intention of taunting investigators. And some murderers do derive a sadistic pleasure from knowing somebody, knowing something that uh, nobody else does. Despite all this strong, though circumstantial evidence, Hans was never brought in for questioning. The uh, Keystone cops who investigated it um, basically seemed to take it in stride. Now, several books have been written about Hans Osman, and he's been linked to other unsolved murders, including that of a 17-year-old uh, Aloui Kaliki Sara in May of 1953, murdered while cycling home from a prayer meeting. In 2003, Dr. Jorma Paolo, who had been training in the Helsinki Surgical Hospital when Hans had come in for treatment, published a book in which he names Hans as the killer. Allegedly, while on his deathbed, Hans confessed to the murders. However, this... Uh, can't be verified. The uh, in um, you know, the problem with deathbed confessions, they may or may not have any validity. In theory, they're often given actually more weight than they should be. Now, this case actually eventually went cold. But because Finland has no statute of limitations for murder, it was reopened in 2004. Sole survivor Nils Gustafsson, who was married with two grown-up children, was arrested on suspicion of having committed the murders himself. Investigators claimed that the broken jaw he sustained during the attack was the result of a fight with Sipo Boisman, his best friend. Police now believe Nils had killed the trio and arranged the crime scene, inflicted knife wounds, and went for his trauma on himself to give the impression of a frenzied attack by an unknown killer. When in doubt, accuse the victim. It's always good for some sound bites on TV. Investigators announced they discovered a key piece of evidence that allegedly tied Nils to the murders. DNA testing had been carried out on Gustafsson's discarded shoes that revealed traces of the victim's blood. Well, if in fact they were stolen and worn by the killer the blood would be there. Now, Nils Gustafsson's trial began August uh, 4th, 2005. 
Defense argued the new DNA evidence didn't prove that Nils was guilty of the murders. They said the killers could easily have stolen Nils' shoes along with several other items of clothing that were taken. Prosecution refuted these arguments, stating that Gustafsson had committed the murders and then discarded his shoes in an attempt to conceal his guilt. Defense used DNA evidence of, of their own to strengthen their case by presenting a pillowcase case that had been found inside the teenager's tent. On it, they found sperm that didn't match uh, either Gustafsson or Sipo Boisman. They argued that it was evidence that somebody else had carried out the attack on the victims in a sexual frenzy. The fact that Gustafsson's own blood was found on the inside of the tent indicated he was also had been in the tent during the frenzied attack, which further strengthened their case. Now, both the defense and the prosecution produced experts who gave conflicting statements with regard to the injuries that Gustafsson had suffered on that night. Neurology specialist uh, Oli Tenavuo uh, claimed it was very plausible that Gustafsson had suffered memory loss following the attack. Prosecution called in the respected physician, Aero uh, Hervensalo, who told the court that the, he believed Nils' injuries were consistent with being punched with a fist as opposed to being bludgeoned with a heavy object. He said these jaw fractures are low-energy injury, low injuries that didn't require a lot of violence. Prosecution argued that such injuries weren't serious enough to cause memory loss. Well, I would have suggested we break one of their jaws and see how they felt about it. Ultimately, the court agreed with the defense, accepting the boy's eyewitness testimony of a blonde-haired man departing the scene, uh, determining it was credible. The court ruled that an unknown assailant had probably attacked the four teenagers as they slept in their tent and rejoiced, uh, rejected the prosecution's scenario that a fight between Gustafsson and Boisman triggered the murders. The court deduced that it was very unlikely Gustafsson would have inflicted his wounds on himself. Gustafsson's lawyer, Rita Lepanimi, commented, uh, he was really very uh, badly injured and couldn't have done what he was charged with. Furthermore, the court questioned how Gustafsson could have disposed of the murder weapons in such a short period of time. Well, after more than 500 days in custody, Gustafsson was acquitted of all charges and awarded uh, $49,936 compensation for the suffering his arrest and trial that caused him. Well, the Lake Bodum murders has haunted Finland for decades, inspiring books, conspiracy theories, movies, and even a death metal band named Children of Bodom. Mystery surrounding the identity of the killer, as well as the killer's motive, has elevated the case to what you might call quasi-mythical status. Three generations of children have grown up being told not to stay out late for fear of the Bodom murderer. And as long as the murderer remains unidentified, that fear will remain. You know, keep in mind that the mere fact that someone is present in a murder but survives does not automatically make them guilty. Uh, if um, a husband and wife, one of them is killed, the other is automatically prime suspect. And the police, rather than thoroughly investigating, hone in on the surviving uh, member to the exclusion of everything else. Look at the Sam Shepard murder case we talked about yesterday. Because the news media zeroed in on uh, Shepard, the police ignored everything that didn't support his guilt. Now, 50 years ago, F. Lee Bailey came up with who he believed the murder suspects should be. 
my independent investigation that ran to 400 pages, over 300 pages, I don't remember the specific number, I arrived at the same conclusion. But did anybody investigate it? Of course not. Sam Shepard's guilty. Got to be him. It was in the paper. Well, let's talk about um, a killer who uh, was roaming Northern California, acting, you know, selecting victims at random. Now, it all began in Benicia, California. Teenage couple on their first date parked on the Lake Herman Road, which was a local uh, secluded lover's lane, and they were startled by a beam of light coming at them through their window. Of course, they saw a man with a flashlight and assumed he was a police officer. I mean, they were clearly nervous. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean... They'd been called in an intimate setting. I don't... Um, the young lady was actually 16 at the time, so there could easily have been repercussions. But before anything could be said, the stranger pulled out a gun, and so within a few seconds, 17-year-old David Faraday was dead, shot in the head. 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen tried to run and only got a little late before she collapsed on the ground. The uh, killer shot her in the back five times. Now, as horrific as the scene was to the sheriff's deputies began investigating it on the morning of December 20th, 1968, they were ignorant of its significance. They assumed the killer had to be a jealous suitor of Betty Lou's. It was seven months before they learned that this double shooting marked the first murders that could be claimed by uh, a man who became infamous, the Zodiac Killer. Now, most murderers avoid direct contact with the police. But the Zodiac Killer, oh no, he chose to taunt them. He started by sending three letters to the California newspapers, the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and the Vallejo Times Herald. And he actually claimed responsibility for not just the Venetia shooting, but for another one. Now, the individual involved in the next one, the other one he claimed responsibility for, it was Darlene Farron, a 22-year-old wife and mother who worked as a waitress at uh, Terry's Waffle Shop in Vallejo, California. On uh, July 5th, 1969, picked up her friend, 19-year-old Michael McGow, parked in a secluded spot at Blue Rock Springs Park. Now, why would a 22-year-old wife and mother take a 19-year-old to a secluded spot? Well, they were going to probably talk about um, international relations or some such. But as they sat there, a stranger approached with a flashlight, stuck a semi-automatic pistol through the driver's side window, and started shooting. Baron was killed, but despite being shot in the jaw, hip, leg, and shoulder, the young man survived. 
although his physical recovery would take a number of months. For calling the attack, he told the police when he cried out in pain. Killer returned to fire two more shots at him and his companion before he left, assuming they were dead. In his letters, the Zodiac Killer not only claimed credit for those murders, but also revealed specific details that only the shooter and the investigating officers could have known. For example, they stated that David was lying on his back with his feet facing toward the car. Betty Lou was lying on her right side, and Darlene was wearing uh, patterned trousers. Letters also correctly identified Super X as the brand of ammunition uh, used in the Benicia uh, killing, and Western as the ammunition employed in the Vallejo murder. Split among the three letters was a cipher that uh, the writer claimed would identify him, and he demanded that the newspapers run that cipher in full. If they didn't, he said he'd go on a killing spree. Well, within days, the newspapers complied. The code was a mishmash of English and Greek letters, well, the symbols from astrology, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Asian mythology, and from Native American rock carvings. Making it harder to decipher were myriad misspellings and grammatical errors. Nevertheless, within a week, a high school teacher named Donald Harden cracked the code, along with his wife, and according to what he got out of that code... It said, I like killing people because it's more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling uh, experience. The best part of that is uh, when I die, I'll be reborn in paradise and all those I killed have become my slaves. I'll not give you my name because you'll try to uh, slow down or stop my collecting of slaves from my afterlife uh... now the last 18 letters they weren't deciphered some believe the letters are a coded anagram of the murderer's name the killer wanted infamy his cipher delivered in full Psychiatrists took the TV and newspapers to offer their analysis which included terms and phrases like omnipotence and Delusions of grandeur. One unnamed psychiatrist told the LA Times that the killer was most likely an isolated individual and if the letters in cipher had been faked, it had been done by a very, very disturbed person. And if they were real, the man was probably going to kill again. Well, Saturday, September 27th was warm and sunny. Perfect day for Celia Ann Shepard, who was 22, and Brian Hartnell, who was 20, to have a picnic. Celia and Brian had dated during college and moved on to become friends, and like uh, Barisa Park, about 20 miles north of Napa, California, uh, offered a picture, picturesque scene for their evening outing as they uh, spread out their blanket and food at a spot near the water. About 6.30 that evening, a car pulled up behind Brian uh, Hartnell's uh, white VW, and the man got out. He was described as at least six foot tall, wore dark gloves, and over his head, a Dark blue hood with large slits for his eyes and mouth. A very peculiar image was painted on the hood, a cross circle, hand painted in white. man waved a pistol at the young couple and announced he'd escaped from a prison in Montana after killing a guard. He said he only wanted their money and car keys so he could go to Mexico. The couple agreed, but the man insisted on tying him up to prevent him from alerting others after he left. He used a, pl a plastic clothesline to bind their hands behind their backs and 
in between their legs. And then he calmly said he had to stab him. The uh, young man said, well, stab me first. I'm, I'm chicken. I can't stand to see her stabbed. And uh, the masked man replied, okay, I'll do you first. Once Brian passed out from a dozen knife wounds in his back, the attacker attacked Celia Ann as though he was frenzied. First in the back, and then you flipped her over to stab her in the breast and stomach and groin. The wounds to her front created an, own, uh, created an outline um, like the one painted on his hood, the crosshairs of a gun sight. Then it left a message sprawled on the door of Brian's car. And there was words and dates and a time, each related to his attacks on David Faraday and uh, Betty Lou Jensen and Darlene Farron and Michael McGow. Killer wanted credit. There's no question about that. An hour after the attack, he used a payphone outside a car wash in Napa to call police and report his crime. He said, I want to report a murder. No. Correction, a double murder. They're two miles north of Park Headquarters, and they run a white Volkswagen Carmen Gia, and I'm the one that did it. Well, despite their serious wounds, Brian and Cecilia managed to untie each other. Brian attempted to find help, but lost too much blood to get far. Fishermen heard Cecilia and Brian's screams and alerted park rangers. Cecilia later died of her wounds, but Brian survived the attack. Two weeks later, the same man killed a cab driver named Paul Stein in San Francisco. Police likely wouldn't have suspected that serial killer slaughtering young couples was also behind the killing of a lone 29-year-old man, but the Zodiac killer himself ensured they knew exactly who the culprit was. He had uh, torn a piece of bloodied shirt from Stein's body and two days later and mailed it to the San Francisco Chronicle. Well, by now, the killer had behind a scattering of clues. Lake Berry, uh, Lake Berry Risa. Police found a size 12 footprint with an unusual sole pattern. They identified the brand as having been sold at Sears. Investigators pulled fingerprints from the payphone in Napa and Stein's uh, taxi cab. Unfortunately, their biggest break also led to their biggest blunder. Three people witnessed Stein's murder and called police. Gave a description of the killer. A white male, 25 to 30 years old, about 5 foot 9, with a stocky build. His hair was styled in a crew cut and he wore heavy rimmed glasses. Well, somehow this information got screwed up in the communication and the officers were told to be on the lookout for a black man. So when the two police spotted a white man matching his description walking away from the scene, they didn't bother to stop him. Two officers later worked with a sketch artist to create a drawing of the man they'd seen. And the sketch prompted tips to point from the police. But of course, none led to an arrest. Zodiac Killer kept taunting investigators in his letters, boasting that the police would never catch him because he was too smart for him. He also threatened school children, promising to shoot out the tire of a school bus and pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. This terrifying threat prompted officers throughout the area to guard school buses, while volunteer teachers and parents rode inside the vehicles. Well, at the height of the Zodiac panic, a man identifying himself as the killer called into a TV show hosted by uh, Jim Dunbar of KGO-TV in the San Francisco Bay Area. Killer insisted he speak on the air with famed attorney Melvin Belli. Belli was best known for representing Jack Ruby, the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the, who was the alleged to have assassinated President Kennedy. 
and over the course of two hours and more than a dozen phone calls, the caller said he was sick and suffered from headaches and that killing alleviated the pain. Bellai tried to coax him into surrendering to police, and the caller at times seemed receptive, and then he blurted, uh, I don't want to give myself up, I want to kill those kids. The entire exchange was televised, and amazingly enough, police were able to confirm whether the caller was the killer or a hoaxer. Stein was the last of the seven confirmed Zodiac victims. There were five fatalities and two severely injured, but the others are suspected. Paul Avery, a veteran crime reporter at the Chronicle, wrote in 1970 the same killer may have been at work in 1966 as well. He reported that notes similar to the ones from the Zodiac Killer were sent to the Riverside Press Enterprise to the police after the 1966 slaying of uh, 18-year-old Cherry Joe Bates. Cherry had uh, worked, uh, been lured from her stall car into a deserted parking lot where she was stabbed to death. The notes were sent afterwards said uh, Bates had to die. There'll be more. And the notes, uh, or two of them, were signed with a Z. Well, Paul Avery also connected the Zodiac Killer to the kidnapping of a 23-year-old mother, Kathleen Johns, who was driving with her one-year-old daughter from San Bernardino to the San Francisco area when another car flashed its lights at her, prompting her to pull over. Man approached and warned her that one of her car wheels was wobbling and fixed it for her. Kathleen started driving again only to have that same tire come completely off the car. The man who helped her stopped again and offered to take her to a gas station. Well, she agreed and got a sinking feeling when the man passed by one station after another. When she questioned him, he said he planned to kill her. Well, Kathleen managed to roll out the car with her daughter and hide in the ditch. When she finally reached the police station to report the incident, she saw a wanted poster featuring a picture of the Zodiac, and she screamed, Oh, my God, that's him. Another suspected but unconfirmed Zodiac case centers on the 25-year-old Donna Lass, who disappeared from South Lake Tahoe in September 1970. Her body was never found. Six months later... Avery got a postcard he believed to be from the Zodiac Killer. The message consisted of cut and pasted newspaper clippings and seemed to say that uh, that's his body be found around uh, in the snow. The note was signed with a cross and circle symbol of the Zodiac's past letters. Now, some thought it was a copycat, specifically because it came on the heels of another confirmed and well-publicized Zodiac communique sent to Avery at the Chronicle. Newspapers across the country ran stories about Avery getting a ghoulish Halloween card in late October 1970. Um, written on it in uh, white ink was the message, Peekaboo, you're doomed. And it was signed from your secret pal. The card was adorned with images of skeletons as well as a handwritten reference to paradise and slaves and the phrase by fire, by gun, by rope. Well, the card was eventually authenticated by a handwriting expert who had studied the uh, Zodiac Killer's other messages. Police considered it a threat on Avery's life, but he declined protection. He said, I'm not really scared. I needled him in some of my stories. Maybe that's why he wrote to me. And I think I'll do a, be a little careful for a while, though. And the last of his 18 confirmed letters, uh, and I might mention that several supposed Zodiac letters were deemed fakes, the killer... Uh, praised the classic 1974 horror movie The Exorcist as the best satirical comedy he'd ever seen and claimed his body count had now reached 37. 
after this revelation, a Zodiac killer apparently disappeared. Well, the abrupt end of the Zodiac's killing spree only seemed to fuel his mystique. Theories about the killer's true identity are never-ending. Um, many have stepped forward, claiming to have solved the mystery. Robert Graysmith, a cartoonist working at the Chronicle when the Zodiac Killer announced himself, became obsessed with the case. Graysmith wrote two best-selling books that uh, proposed the killer was Arthur Lee Allen. Allen, who died in 1992, had been less than honorably discharged from the Navy in 1958 and fired from a teaching job for molesting a student in 1968. Allen wore a Zodiac brand watch, the logo of which was similar to the crosshair signature the killer favored. He was uh, reported by, uh, by the, to the police by a former friend, Don Cheney, who had broken off with Allen when Allen supposedly uh, floated ideas for a novel he planned to write and began talking about calling himself Zodiac and killing people. One of Allen's ideas involved shooting the tires off a school bus and killing the children inside, the same threat that the Zodiac killer would subsequently make. 1974, the same year the final Zodiac letter was sent, Allen was arrested for molesting a 12-year-old boy. He pled guilty to the charge and served a two-year prison sentence. 1991, he was identified in a photo lineup by Michael McGow, one of the Zodiac killer survivors. However, despite a wealth of circumstantial evidence, DNA, fingerprint, and handwriting tests actually cleared Allen. He eventually died in 1992 at home in Vallejo, California, of a heart attack. 2007, when Zodiac, a film adaptation of Grace Smith's book, directed by David Fincher, uh, hit cinema and interest was renewed on the case. Detective George Bowart said he was 95% sure Allen was the killer. He said, what really bothered me about this case is that we were ready to charge Allen, but he died before we could do that. 2014, Gary Stewart wrote a book called The Most Dangerous Animal of All, claiming his biological father was the Zodiac. Stewart had been abandoned in the stairwell soon after being born, and as an adult, he learned his father was Earl Van Best Jr., a book salesman, whom uh, Stewart said had uh, disturbing fixations and rage issues. Stewart pointed to his father's appearance. A dead ringer for the police sketch circulated in 1969 said that he uh, found his father's initials, E.V. Best and Jr., in a Zodiac cipher sent to the San Francisco Examiner. San Francisco police commented they were investigating the claim. An expert matched the handwriting in the Zodiac Killer's letters to Earl Van Best's signature on his marriage certificate. Hundreds of names have been linked to the case at one time or another, but a few individuals, all of whom unfortunately are now dead, warrant particular attention. One is Louis Myers. Before his death, death in 2002, a friend said he had confessed to being a Zodiac Killer. He supposedly targeted couples after breaking up with his girlfriend, who... Uh, did not leave him with happy feelings. Myers had connections with several of his victims, attending the same high school as David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, and allegedly working at the same restaurant as Darlene Farron. And no Zodiac letters were received for a period between 71 and 73. At the same time, Myers was stationed overseas with the military, which would be a good reason for there not to be any letters. A suspect named Lawrence Kane... Was allegedly uh, had allegedly pestered Darlene Farron at work. Had a history of sex offenses that ceased in '69. He fit descriptions of the killer and could also be linked to the crime because of an amogram of his surname could be found in the Zodiac Killer's cipher. 
1991, the Vallejo Police Department reopened a case and discovered that Kane's known whereabouts matched police victims, uh, places victims lived or murder scenes. Traumatic brain injury in a car crash in 1962 had affected Kane's speech and gait. It's conceivable the effects of this injury were gradually turned Kane in, uh, into a killer. Uh, unfortunately, for all concerned, or maybe fortunately, he died in 2010, 86 years old in Nevada. Another suspect named Ross Sullivan had been hospitalized for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia several times. He also habitually wore boots whose soles were similar to footprints found at the Lake uh, Barisi uh, murder scene and bore resemblance to the 1969 wanted poster sketch of the killer, sporting short hair and glasses. Nobody seems to know if uh, he was ever interviewed by police. And yet another suspect with a connection to the Lake Barisi stabbings was Donald Lee Bujork, a felon who was released from the Montana prison in 1968 after serving 11 years for killing a sheriff's deputy. Cecilia Shepard, Brian Hartnell's attacker, told him he'd just escaped from a Colorado prison. Police are still hoping to finally solve the, this case with modern technology. In 2018, Vallejo detectives sent two envelopes containing Zodiac letters to a lab in the hopes that uh, saliva from the envelope flap or beneath the stamps might contain the killer's DNA. Detective Terry Poiser said if the lab could create a genetic profile based on that DNA, investigators might be able to track down the killer through genealogy websites. He said it really comes down to the DNA. If we don't have that, we don't have anything. Well, we've done two uh, very well-known murder cases today. We'll do a couple more on Monday. And then we'll wrap up the cases I set aside for the show. And then we'll find another bizarre topic to talk about. Well, until Monday, because today is Friday, at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening and weekend.